Today, drug-resistant diseases claim the lives of around 700,000 people each year. Now, that's expected to leap to 10 million by 2050. Compare that with today's deaths from cancer, 8.2 million each year. Now, the study goes further to talk about the economic impact, predicting global costs will spiral upwards to $100 trillion. Antibiotic resistance is, is currently a serious threat and potentially it's going to be a critical threat in the next five to ten years. Um, there are a number of different approaches we can take and, and reducing unnecessary antibiotic use is probably the first thing that we can immediately do to help stop the growth of resistance. That's Dr. Mark Blaskovich, Program Coordinator at the Institute for Molecular Bioscience at the University of Queensland. His work investigates infections that adapt to resist antibiotics. These infections are known as superbugs and are responsible for thousands of deaths around the world each year. The challenge for researchers like Dr. Blaskovich is to develop new antibiotics that can beat bacterial resistance. Will Isdale spoke to Dr. Blaskovich about his work to take on superbugs and the level of threat antibiotic resistance presents to all nations. Antibiotics essentially are drugs that are able to kill or prevent the growth of bacteria. And so they're able to treat bacterial infections, which otherwise could lead to death in the patient that has them. And how were antibiotics first discovered or developed? So the very first discovery um, was back in the 1940s by uh, Fleming and Flory in the UK, uh, where they found accidentally that a fungus growing was able to inhibit the growth of bacteria on a plate they'd left out over the weekend. And from that, they, they discovered penicillin, which was the first really useful antibiotic for treating infections. And then since then, do you think that the story of antibiotics is largely a story of discovery like that? Or is it now much more common that we develop or create entirely novel antibiotics? Yeah, so that's the interesting thing is that the majority of antibiotics have been discovered from natural products. And so what's called the golden, golden age of antibiotic discovery during the, the 50s, 60s and early 70s, almost all the major classes of antibiotics that we're now using were discovered from natural products. And most of the new antibiotics that are still being introduced are variations of those. So we're, we're able to, essentially we're in an arms race with bacteria in terms of bacteria have developed resistance to every antibiotic that's been developed. But we're able to tweak those antibiotics and come up with new and improved versions to stay ahead of the bacterial resistance. And the problem is we're no longer producing enough antibiotics to stay ahead of that arms race and the bacteria is starting to win. We've only had antibiotics for about 70 years. So what's happened during that time period that has led to being, there being such resistance to antibiotics? It's just bacteria can adapt very rapidly. So because they, they reproduce so quickly and depending on the type of bacteria, the new generation about every 20 minutes. So they mutate very quickly and can adapt. They have a large population. And so any one of those millions of bacteria can have a mutation which suddenly gives it resistance to the antibiotic that's trying to kill it and it's able to survive and then rapidly grow up and now you've got a new resistance element population of bacteria and they're also you can say they're sexually promiscuous so they're able to transmit this resistance on things called plasmids between different bacteria and so once one bacteria has developed resistance they can easily transfer it to another bacteria which hasn't been exposed to that antibiotic yet but now is going to be resistant to that antibiotic as well. 
Where does that tend to happen, that sort of sharing of genes that confer resistance? So it can happen within a patient's body. It can happen in the environment. So wherever, you know, there, there are bacteria everywhere. So if you, you know, we, we take these handprints of people on, on plates, agar plates, and it's amazing the different types of bacteria and fungi that grow up. And, you know, on the back of a cell phone, there are many different types of bacteria growing there. So bacteria are in communities everywhere. So they, they're just mingling in the environment and where there are resistant bacteria, and it could be in animals that are being treated with antibiotics, could be in humans treated with antibiotics, could be in the community. How long, for how long has antibiotic resistance been a problem that we've been aware of? So from the very first discovery of penicillin, um, in his Nobel lecture describing the discovery of penicillin, Fleming noted that if we misuse antibiotics, they were going to be, the bacteria would develop resistance. And right at the beginning with penicillin, it was noticed that people develop resistance to penicillin. So it's been known for a long time. And it's just because we, in the past, we have found so many new antibiotics or being able to improve the existing antibiotics that we've been able to stay ahead of the growth in resistance. So what's caused that slowdown in the development of new antibiotics? So it's predominantly driven by the exit of large pharmaceutical companies from antibiotic research. So essentially there are only three or four major pharmaceutical companies that are still investing in antibiotic research now as opposed to 15, 20 years ago when there were maybe 20 or 30 companies. So most of the research now has been driven by a few very small biotech companies who don't have the money to develop and take the antibiotics further into clinical development. So why have all these pharmaceutical companies been leaving that space of antibiotic development? So it, it's largely driven by economics. So for an antibiotic treatment, the majority of infections you can still treat with common antibiotics that are often generic and so very cheap and effective to use. And so they cost $100, $200 for a course of treatment. You take it for two weeks and essentially you're cured. You know, you're saved and, and your life is saved. And that's compared to cancer therapies where pharmaceutical companies are able to charge $100,000, $200,000 per year for treatment that people have to keep taking, even though that treatment often only prolongs their lives for a couple of years as opposed to saving it. And so right now, antibiotics are incredibly undervalued as a medicine. And so the uh, for a pharmaceutical company, they can't make enough money off a new antibiotic because the, the competing against the cheap generics, the financial market doesn't allow them to charge more than a couple thousand dollars for a treatment. And they can only, you know, they, they treat a patient for two weeks, then the patient is cured. And so it's not a repetitive treatment like... Um, you know, a, a cholesterol drug where they have to keep taking it for the rest of their lives. And so just economically, it's very difficult for a large pharmaceutical company to make the case that developing antibiotics is going to give a financial return to their investors. And if a new antibiotic that was entirely novel and very effective was developed, presumably public health officials would be the first to say, don't use it ex until you've tried absolutely everything else. So isn't that's exactly why these drug companies wouldn't bother to go into that space in the first place. Yeah, that's exactly the problem is that you want to, if, if you have an effective antibiotic that's going to be able to treat these infections that are now occasionally resistant to all other bacteria, you want to save it for those very special cases and not use it indiscriminately. So that means currently there are very few cases that you would actually be able to sell it for. And this is why there are a number of national reports that have come out recently that are recommending 
financial incentives for companies to develop drugs and then essentially shelve them until they're needed. And so have a fund of multiple billions of dollars where if a company develops an antibiotic that is effective, they can be paid a you know a fee of a billion dollars to have that drug ready to be used, produce it, but actually not have it being used by patients until they're absolutely needed. So we need some way to decouple the economic incentive to develop antibiotics from the incentive then to kind of over-prescribe, over-prescribe them, which is causing the resistance problem. But who's going to pay for that? Yeah, so that's where um, there's a, a report from the UK which describes possible financial economic incentives. And so one way is for governments to put a levy on and, and fund such a program. Um, the other thing is to levy pharmaceutical companies that aren't actually actively investing in antibiotic research and they have to pay a fee every year that goes into a fund which would build up and be used to fund this antibiotic research. Um, you know, it, it's such a worldwide global problem that we need governments to be doing something. And so there's a recognition now that this is a huge issue and the national government you know, in Australia, the UK, the USA have all put out reports that describe this is a real issue, we need to start doing something about it. And in some countries, they are starting to put money in to develop new initiatives. And so the US, there's recently been announced a new initiative called the CARBEX initiative, which is focused on specifically on trying to develop new antibiotics, predominantly for gram-negative infections. Um, there's an IMI Enable initiative in Europe, which again is trying to develop new antibiotics specifically for gram-negative, which are the, the more serious types of infections. Within Australia, again, there's a couple of reports that have come out recently that stress the need to do things, but at this point, there hasn't been government funding put into, invested into antimicrobial research specifically in Australia. It is not surprisingly the world's poorest nations that are most at risk. Nine of the estimated 10 million deaths will be in Africa and Asia. The aim of the study is to sound the alarm and galvanize global action. You're not going to be able to solve this by just focusing on it in the UK or in Europe or indeed uh, just in the developed world. It's going to affect everybody. So it's something that there has to be a, a collective agreement on. How worried do you think we need to be about antibiotic resistance? So it's, it's definitely, it, it's a current threat. People are currently dying now of antibiotic resistant infections. So within Australia, um, we're looking about one person dying a day potentially because of antimicrobial resistance. In other countries, it's already at a much higher level than that. And so um, within our group, we're doing a lot of research into developing new antibiotics um, we've retrieved strains from around the world, and particularly in some countries, um, and countries where you may not expect it to be, some developed countries such as Greece, there are these isolates that are resistant to almost every known antibiotic, and they're you know very scary because if you get an infection with one of these, there's no antibiotic that can treat you anymore, and, and you will die, and people are dying. So the, the threat is already there. I think the question is, how rapidly is that going to spread? And so right now it's fairly contained, and we're able to still... Um, treat most infections with normal antibiotics. If those highly resistant bacteria all of a sudden become highly prevalent everywhere in the world, it's going to be a very serious issue where we don't have a solution because it takes so long to develop a new antibiotic that there's a generally from the time you discover a potential antibiotic to the time it's used in the first used in the clinic, it's going to be at least 10 to 15 years. And so if these infections start spreading rapidly within the next couple of years, 
you know, we're going to have a 10-year gap at least before we're able to do anything about treating them with new antibiotics. Could you tell me about some of the antibiotic-resistant bac- bacteria that are the most concerning? Um, so we're dealing with a lot of strains of Klebsiella pneumonia, which generally causes pneumonia. Um, and they, they've developed high resistance to all types of antibiotics, including what's now considered the last resort antibiotic for these gram-negative infections, and that's uh, the colistin polymyxin antibiotics. And so once they become resistant to those, that essentially takes out your last potential therapy able to treat them with. So is it is it becoming very common for people to pick up uh, bacteria that are resistant to everything? Or is it a matter of they're picking up stuff that just takes a really long time and you have to throw the kitchen sink at it? So the, some of these bacteria will develop resistance during their treatment. So, for example, the, the polymyxin-resistant Klebsiella strains, they'll often start out having this highly resistant Klebsiella, which is still susceptible to this last resort antibiotic. But during the course of treatment with the polymyxin, it develops resistance over the course of several weeks. And so now you've developed within the patient this highly resistant bacteria, which then isn't able to be treated with other antibiotics. Okay, and now I'd like to talk to you about the, what you're doing here at the UQ Center for Superbug Solutions and Drug Development. I was wondering if you could start us off by just telling us what is the UQ Center for Superbug Solutions and what sort of work do you do? So the Center for Superbug Solutions is a group of researchers that have a number of different approaches trying to solve the problem of antimicrobial resistance and drug-resistant infections. And so there are a number of different strategies ranging from developing new antibiotics to trying to being able to rapidly diagnose infections and able to coordinate the data about infections so you're able to track where infections are and where resistance is arising. So antibiotics are incredibly precious resource and we've been misusing them and abusing them for the last 50, 60 years. So when antibiotics are prescribed, they're often prescribed for things where it's not actually a bacterial infection. And so there are estimates that approximately 60-70% of patients that are prescribed antibiotics actually don't need to be getting the antibiotic. And that's driven both by doctors trying to be safe and over-prescribing and patients going in and demanding to be given something for, you know, they've got a cold or runny nose, which is generally caused by a virus, not a bacterial infection. And so, you know, they demand to be given an antibiotic and the doctor complies. So we need to be able to identify when people actually need to be given antibiotics. And so that's where having a rapid bacterial diagnostic would be incredibly useful. So right now, in terms of bacterial diagnosis, we're still relying on technology that's 100, 150 years old, where first of all, you have to spend 24 hours waiting for a culture sample to grow up before you can try figuring out, do you have an infection and what type of bacteria it is? And so we're working on a a diagnostic, which would be able to tell you within six hours, do you have an infection, what type of bacteria it is, and what its resistance profile is. And that would greatly reduce the misuse of antibiotics because you could prescribe the correct antibiotic at immediately without having to guess what type of infection or what type of bacteria it is. And if it's not resistant, you can use a, you know, one of the older antibiotics. If it does have resistance, you know which type of antibiotic to use to overcome the resistance. So I think I saw a news story recently about this new development of rapid, rapid diagnostic testing that's come out of the, this center. How far off uh, clinical use is that? Yeah, so it's still a few years away um, in terms of it, you know, it needs to go through a lot of validation steps before it will become accepted. Um, we're also working on a complementary technology to that, which is actually 
uh, doing sequencing of the bacteria so you can tell what type of bacteria it is. So there, you know, there, there are several different steps in the process in terms of, A, distinguishing viral from bacterial infection would be very important. That would reduce a lot of unnecessary use. If you're also able to identify what type of bacteria it is and what type of resistance it has, again, that's incredibly valuable work. And so we're using a, a magnetic nanoparticle technology where we capture the bacteria from a biological sample, concentrate it down into very small volume, and then we can use this new um, nanopore sequencer to determine what the genetic composition of the bacteria is. And that can immediately tell us what type of bacteria it is and give us an idea of what type of resistance genes it has and so what type of resistance profile uh, the bacteria might have. When you decide that you want to create a new antibiotic, where do you start? Yeah, so that's an interesting one. So a number of different approaches have been taken. So the most common approach, which has been the most successful over the years, is to take a known antibiotic and try to tweak it to make it more effective and to overcome resistance. And so within our group, we've done that with one antibiotic. So there's a, a antibiotic called vancomycin, which has been used since the 1950s. It's commonly used for gram-positive infections, but there's a lot of resistance rising to it, against it. And particularly in Australia, um, there's one strain of enterococcus called VRE, which is vancomycin resistant, and Australia has one of the highest rates of resistance in the world for some reason. It's not clear why, but for some reason we've got really high resistance. So for Australia, this would be, you know, having a, an antibiotic that's able to overcome that resistance would be very useful. And so we've taken vancomycin and, and added on some elements to it, which try to specifically target it to the membrane, the outside of a bacteria, as opposed to a human cell. And so that will try to give it more selectivity for the bacteria, greater potency, and less toxic side effects to human cells. And again, that's one of the problems with many antibiotics. At the concentration needed to kill bacteria, you also start to cause harm to human cells. And so you start getting these toxicity often to the kidneys in humans. Instead of tinkering with those old compounds, wouldn't it be better to create entirely new novel classes of antibiotics? Yeah, it, it would be. And a lot of people have been trying to do that um, over a number of years. And in the last 20 or 30 years, pharma companies have shifted towards what's called rational drug discovery, where they try to take an isolated target that they think um, they can inhibit that would be effective against the disease and develop a drug discovery program based around that. Unfortunately for antibiotics, for some reason, that approach has been spectacularly unsuccessful so far. And so the, the old-style screening approaches of doing what's type called a phenotypic assay, where you basically you just take a bacteria in a solution and see if your compound kills it, is still probably the most effective way of finding new antibiotics. So there are two other approaches to discovering antibiotics, other than the first one, in terms of redeveloping older antibiotics. So the second approach is, is to go back into the literature during the golden age of antibiotic discovery, there are a lot of other antibiotics reported in the literature that weren't developed any further because at the same time, you know, there's so many possibilities there that they only developed some of them. So within the literature, there could be these little nuggets of old antibiotics already reported, which may be effective and useful. And so that's another program that we have where we've, we've gone back and we've found and, and older antibiotic that's been reported to be effective against gram-negative bacteria and actually has been reported to be effective against these polymyxin-resistant bacteria. And so now we're doing a medicinal chemistry optimization program trying to improve its activity, improve its potency. And it's very exciting because we're at a stage, you know, we've got compounds which 
still work against these bacteria that are otherwise resistant to every other antibiotic. And so it's still early stages in terms of getting to the clinic, you know, it'd still be three or four years away from potentially having something which would ever be first in man, and then it'd be another 10 years before it'd ever make it to market. But at the same time, you know, there are very few antibiotics out there that have the capability that these ones may be able to cure these infections where all other antibiotics don't work. So the final approach um, is trying to find, as you say, new chemical diversity and new antibiotics that haven't been discovered before that have new types of structures or act on different targets in bacteria. So again, in the world in general, there's been a, a significant return towards the origins of antibiotic discovery, and that is natural product research. And they're trying to take different approaches now in, in order to do this natural product discovery. So basically the low-hanging fruit of, of being able to grow up fungi and bacteria and isolate new antibiotics from them they tend to just rediscover the same antibiotics that have already been reported. But there's some new tweaks you can put onto that. So you can try growing up um, soil samples under different conditions that are more conducive to growing different strains of fungi or bacteria that haven't been reported before. And these might be producing new metabolites which have antimicrobial activity. Um, you can try to grow up known bacteria or fungi under different types of conditions. So under different growth conditions, they'll produce different metabolites. And again, they may have different antimicrobial properties. Um, or you can do what's called metagenomic mining. So you can actually take a population of, of fungi and bacteria and sequence them all and look at the genetic sequence to see if you can predict that they would produce some unusual molecules and then use that to, again, generate new versions of different types of antibiotics. So the approach that we've taken, though, is trying to have a different shift. And so instead of looking at this natural product chemical diversity, over the years, you know, the last hundred years, synthetic chemists around the world and academic labs predominantly have made millions and millions of chemical compounds. And if you look in, there's a, a, a database um, called Chemical Abstract Services. There are over 80 million organic compounds registered in there that have been made over the years. And the majority of those have never been tested for antimicrobial activity. And the majority of them are made by academic chemists for different reasons. They can be developing a new synthetic methodology. They could be doing a medicinal chemistry program for some other target. Um, they, some chemists just make molecules because they, they look interesting and they just want to make these unusual structures. So after they've made them, they've published their paper, they sit on little vials in, in the backs of fridges and freezers or on shelves in their labs, and they don't do anything with them. And so we have this initiative um, called the Community for Open Antimicrobial Drug Discovery, where we're trying to return towards a collaborative discovery approach towards antibiotics. And so with funding from, significant funding from the Wellcome Trust and support from the University of Queensland, we've launched this initiative where we offer free screening to chemists around the world. And we test them against five different bacteria. So four of the most serious gram-negative bacteria, one gram-positive, and then two fungi, which are also um, causing serious infections and showing signs of growing resistance as well. And we do this for free. And so part of our initiative is a lot of an outreach program to make people, chemists around the world, aware that we're offering this service because we need to get them to send us their compounds. And so we've done uh, online publicity, we've done gone to conferences and seminars, um, we've published articles about it, and it's so far, uh, we've been running for about 18 months now, and it's been highly successful in terms of attracting interest and people sending us compounds. 
So in 18 months, we've received over 120,000 compounds from nearly 200 different chemistry groups around the world in 35 different countries. So it really is a global initiative, and all these compounds are coming to Australia for us to test. So we're essentially building what's potentially going to be the world's largest molecular bank of chemical compounds, which will have a large amount of diversity because we're not doing any screening in trying to limit what types of structures we're testing for. So you're essentially trying to open up the cabinets and the fridges of chemistry departments all around the world and see if they've got some interesting chemicals that they've never tested before for antibiotic properties. Exactly. That's exactly what we're doing. And one of the reasons behind this is that we believe that one of the reasons that pharmaceutical companies have been so unsuccessful in discovering new antibiotics is that they're very focused on making collections of compounds that comply with sets of rules of what they believe are going to be drug-like compounds. And most of those rules are designed towards making compounds that are in particular orally available. So they want to make compounds for their other drug discovery programs where you can take them as a pill. But a lot of those rules, if you look at the structures of approved antibiotics, most approved antibiotics don't meet those rules. So if you only have a collection of compounds that's designed to meet those rules, you're going to be largely excluding most of the potential antibiotics. So the drug companies are thinking in terms of a certain paradigm that isn't really yielding anything anymore. Exactly. It's, you know, it's effective for their other research programs, for other different types of targets, but for antimicrobials, they have different properties from a lot of other drugs. And so this is where we think by having this collection of compounds that's not bound by any rules, you know, we'll screen anything as long as it's stable and not radioactive and not toxic, um, we have a much greater chance of finding new diverse structures that have antimicrobial activity and have potential to develop as new antibiotics. So what sort of response have you had from this call for different compounds and how many have you screened so far? So as I said, we've received 120,000. Um, we've screened 50 or 60,000 of them so far. And we've got a couple thousand of initial hits, which we then go through and do what we call a hit confirmation. So initially we only tested a single concentration and that's against a little um, solution of the bacteria. And we just see if it inhibits the growth of the bacteria or not. So the hit compounds we then put through what we call uh, a minimum inhibitory concentration assay where we look at the concentration dependence and at what concentration of this compound does it actually inhibit or kill the bacterial growth. And then we also counter-screen to see if it's toxic against human cells. So, so looking at the cytotoxicity of the compounds because if they're toxic at similar or, or, or more toxic against human cells, it's very unlikely they're going to have potential as an antibiotic because somehow you have to tease out that difference between killing the bacteria and killing the human cells. 50 or 60,000 compounds is a lot to test. How do you get through them all? So we have a high-throughput screening format set up where we actually test them in, in small plates that hold 384 compounds uh, per plate. And then we have a robotic system which runs the compounds through and, and tests them against our seven different pathogens with the help of a lot of human intervention as well. Uh, typically what happens is uh, when there's a lot of antibiotic use in a community, bacteria become resistant. This particular bacteria, something known as E. coli, something we've talked about a lot, uh, does have a lot of different classes of antibiotics to try and treat it, at least seven different types of antibiotics, not just antibiotics, but entire classes of antibiotics. And this particular bacteria uh, didn't uh, respond to any of those. And, and, and that's the big concern. Uh, people have been anticipating something like this happening for some time. And we don't know that for her, it's, it's her, her immune system may still fight off this bacteria. 
but I think it's a little bit of an of a, uh, indication of what might be to come, more of these types of bacteria. So once you've identified some potential compounds, what happens next in terms of developing them into an antibiotic that can be used in the clinic? So this is where the collaborative nature of, of COAD comes into play. So the person who has submitted the compound retains all the rights to the compound. And so we send them back the results and they can then do whatever they want with it. They can publish, they can patent, they can develop it on their own, or they can collaborate with us and we can provide guidance on what steps to do next. The set of data that we collect through COAD. So we do this HIT confirmation, and then we do do another step, what we call HIT validation. And so we do some further testing of the compound for its antimicrobial activity against a wider selection of bacteria than we initially screen against. We also take a preliminary look at some of its drug-like properties to see if it does have potential to be developed as a drug. We synthesize or have the collaborators synthesize several analogs. So we see if there's potential to do some medicinal chemistry optimization around it as well. And then again, all that data goes back to the collaborator. The only thing that COAD requires is within two years of getting their initial data back, the collaborator needs to let us know what the structure is, and that structure gets published on a database that is publicly accessible. And the reason behind that is that as part of the collaboration, we have this large data set now of all these different types of compounds that have been tested under standardized conditions. And so in terms of other researchers trying to figure out what types of properties might make a good antibiotic, it's going to be an invaluable set of data for them to trawl through to see not only which compounds are active, but also what types of compounds aren't active. How do you get antibiotic compounds that are likely to kill bad bacteria, but not kill the commensal or good bacteria on humans? So that's, that's very difficult to do, and there are very few antibiotics out there that can do that. Um, one of the few that's recently approved was one called fidaxomycin, which is for treating C. difficile infections, um, which are a, a serious infection uh, in the gut that, that causes, can lead to death in, in serious cases. Um, and that antibiotic has shown selectivity for the, the C. difficile pathogen over a lot of the beneficial commensal gut microbiota. But in general, um, other than having selectivity between gram-positive and gram-negative bacteria, most antibiotics are, are, will just kill anything that's in the same type of class. So, you know, gram-positive will kill not only the infecting gram-positive, but also the beneficial microbes that live within your intestine and gut as well. And that's why there are often a lot of side issues associated with antibiotic use, and, and you get, you know, intestinal discomfort and, and issues when you're taking an oral treatment of antibiotics. And why doesn't antibiotic resistance evolve in response to soaps or alcohol hand gels, those sorts of things? Yeah, so for, particularly for hand sanitizers, the active ingredient in those for a long time, it was thought that there wasn't antimicrobial resistance developed against it. And the, the triclosan that's used in a lot of the, or has been used in a lot of the antimicrobial uh, hand washes. Um, but in the last few years, it's actually been discovered that, yes, actually, they do develop resistance to that. And the reason that, that soaps, et cetera, are so effective is that they just have a general mechanism of killing that that basically is, is killing the, uh, permeating the outside membrane of bacteria. And it's very difficult for bacteria to develop resistance against something like that. So, you know, for surface treatment, there are a lot of things which are able to successfully kill bacteria. The problem is for an antibiotic that you want to take internally, it's very difficult to come up with something that's selective for bacteria over human cells. 
I guess you can't have something that's as strong that you ingest internally because it would kill your own cells as well. Exactly. You know, bleach is very effective at killing bacteria and you, know, you can use it to disinfect surfaces and you could even put a solution on your skin surface and it's not going to harm you seriously. But you try taking that internally, obviously, and it's going to be very bad for you. And that's where a lot of, um, you know, there's, there are a lot of reports of remedies from natural products. There's um, a fairly high profile report a couple of years ago about a medieval recipe which was able to kill MRSA. And yes, you know, on the surface in solutions, these things can often kill these drug, you know, drug resistant bacteria such as MRSA. But again, you can't take them internally. So if you have an internal infection, they're not going to be effective at, at treating it. And that's where we will leave Dr. Blaskovich. Thank you for listening to this Speaking With podcast. You can subscribe to Speaking With through iTunes or through TuneIn Radio. If you liked this podcast or if you have ideas for future podcasts, please send us a comment through iTunes.